want to thank everybody for coming today to Cornerstone. This is our Second Street campus, and we have a 411 Mark Street campus as well. And uh, I want to thank you for coming and uh, hope that you find people here that love you and uh, a sense that we love the Word of God. And speaking of the Word of God, if you would get your Bibles open to Jude, we're always going to be in the Bible. And we are a, a Bible-preaching church and a Bible-living church to the best that we can through the grace of the Lord. So open those up, if you would, to Jude. And we're in a series, um, actually a mini-series within the series of Jude called Becoming a Contender. And we're learning to contend for the faith. And we're looking at the second part of that mini-series today in Jude, verses 20 through 21. And to begin today, I want to read a little bit of poetry. I'm really not a fan of poetry. Um, actually, many don't know this. I actually write poetry occasionally. I didn't write what I'm going to read to you, but once in a while, when I'm inspired, I will write my lovely wife a poem or my family a poem. And, um, but I don't really like to listen to poetry, and I don't really like to read it, but I don't mind writing it. But I'm going to start today with a poem, and there is not a known source to this little poetry, but I want you to, to hear it because I think it frames for us where we're about to go in this sermon. Where our captains bid us go, tis not ours to murmur no. He that gives the sword and shield chooses to the battlefield where we are to fight the foe. Well, there is a battlefield to which we are called to fight as Christians. And at that battlefield, it might be your home, it might be your school, it might be your neighborhood, it could be your dorm room, uh, you're called to fight for the faith. And you've got a battlefield, and we've got a foe to fight, and our enemies are the world, the devil, and our own flesh, and we are to contend for the faith. And Jude is our coach. And I want you to think of these this mini-series in more of a coaching team type of mindset. And Jude is our coach, and he's teaching us how to become contenders for that faith which is under attack. And if you remember two weeks ago, in his first instruction, we saw that he's telling us to look back and remember. He said, we must remember, verse 17, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is, don't forget. Keep your eyes open. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be flat-footed. Remember together. Stay together as a team. A divided team will never win the fight. you got to remember what the apostles and what Jesus promised us. There will come false teachers. And they're going to try to get into the church. And they're going to try to divide the church. And we need to be prepared. So Jude moves to the second instruction. In verses 20 through 21. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Coach Jude is about to teach. Look in and remain. Look in and remain. Look what he says. Let's read together verse 20. And starting in verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. And praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Waiting for the mercy of of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. There's four instructions that are actually commands. These are all commands in the Greek language. 
And if we're going to be strong enough to stand against our enemies, if we're going to be able to advance the gospel against our foes, then we've got to learn to build, pray, keep, and hope. Let's unpack those today. Look at the first one, to build. He says, if you notice in, begin, in the beginning of verse 20, but you, beloved. Now, remember from two weeks ago, I told you that beloved is a word that's really not in our dictionary. I mean, when's the last time that you called somebody beloved? Well, Jude is speaking to the church. So beloved is not an individual believer. He's speaking to the community of faith. The beloved are those who are located in the love of God. They are inseparable from the love of God. The love of God surrounds them powerfully, permanently. Nothing can take you out of the hand of God. His love is permanent. It is safe. It is secure. We are the beloved if we are in Christ. But in the early church, and this is, and I, I didn't bring this out two weeks ago, but I want you to see this as a connection to these instructions that Jude is giving to the church. Because the word beloved to the early church carried with it an allusion to suffering and to anguish. Now you heard that, right? The word beloved would have carried a connotation of softness and mercy to those who are suffering and those who are in anguish. Let me remind you of the Old Testament even. If you remember when Abraham was told by God to take his son, his only son. Well, let me read it to you. Genesis chapter 22. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. There's that word beloved. See, there's such a thing as called the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew. And in the Greek version, that word is the same word that's in Jude verse 20. It is beloved. Take that son, your only son, Isaac, beloved, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So there's a beloved word, there's a belovedness that God speaks to Abraham as he's about to do that which would be unthinkable to him, which would be to sacrifice his son Isaac. Well, you know the rest of the story, God stayed his hand and instead provided a sacrifice for him. But the point is that the word beloved communicates a deep concern or a love for those about to or who are presently suffering. In fact, if you remember in the Gospels, God the Father at the baptism of Jesus the Son calls him calls him beloved. And what happens right after the baptism? Well, the Spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days without food. There's a period of suffering. And later God called Jesus beloved again just before Jesus, who was on the mountain of transfiguration, just before Jesus turned his face to Jerusalem to die on that horrible cross. Well, the word is used today, you might know. Not very often, but it is used, and ironically, it's used in funerals, it's used in obituaries, it's used when somebody has suffered or is suffering, like those who are grieving. So the word beloved has a connection to suffering. And you need to remember that Jude's readers are suffering from without or outside the walls of the church or those home churches. 
by the Romans. The Romans are inflicting pain, inflicting suffering upon the church, but they're also suffering from within the church as well, from the false teachers, the apostates that are wandering in or making their way into the church, trying to divide it. And neither Abraham nor Jesus, not even Isaac, none of them shrunk back in the face of suffering, and neither can we. The beloved must contend for the faith. Well, look what he writes. He starts out by saying, but you, beloved, and then he writes, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Friends, this functions in the Greek language, as I noted just a minute ago, as a command. But I want you to note especially the word faith. The word faith is the trust that we place the confidence that we place in the entire body of beliefs that are made clear in God's word. In other words, it's this. The word faith is the confidence you have in the message of the gospel, the message of God's redeeming love made clear from Genesis to Revelation. It has subjective and objective faith wrapped up in that holy faith term. And what I mean by that is this. Now, this is easy. This is this is simple. It means subjective faith is this. Uh, as an example, I have faith that God will provide for my needs. That's subjective faith. That's the power of believing what you cannot see. But then there's objective faith as well. And objective faith would be Philippians 4.19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So you've got the objective faith of the word of God informing the subjective faith of our confidence in God. And what we need to remember is that subjective faith, that confidence in God, depends on the objective truth to grow. In other words, you need to know the Word of God. The Word of God informs our ability to trust. If you're wondering why your faith is so weak, well, the first thing you want to look at is see if there's a correlation in your love for, your appreciation of, your study in the Word of God. For if you're studying in the Word of God, you're loving it, you're living it, your subjective confidence in God and what you cannot see will be powerful, it will be strong. By the way, faith is the same that we saw in verse 3, except there, and I want you to note this, this is important, there it was the faith not your faith. In verse 20, it's your faith. Verse 3, it's the faith. And what you're seeing in verse 20 is that within your faith, there's a responsibility. There's a responsibility that every Christian, you and I, if you put your faith in Jesus, that we all have to grow up into that which we believe that is the gospel message, that objective message, the truth of God's redeeming work in humanity. So that the, your faith is that responsibility. you got to build yourself up into that faith, your holy faith. See, the difference between the and your is like the difference between caring for a house that you rent and a house you own. See, the faith is the, the faith is the house that you rent. 
Your faith is the house that you own. And there's a a responsibility to take care of it. There's a responsibility to watch over it. And there's a responsibility to grow in it. So build up, grow stronger in your faith, Jude says, which is holy, unchangeable, and must not be changed. So remember, let's keep our bearings in this. What Jude is doing is he's teaching us to be able to be contenders for the faith. And what he says in this second one that we've got to look in and remain is that, number one, you've got to build yourself up in your faith, your holy faith, the subjective truth or confidence in God that's taught to you and strengthened in you by the objective reality of God's word. This is what Peter is hinting at. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. You know, supplement, build on it with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. There's a building on our faith. There's a building up of our faith that we can do. And if you want your faith to grow stronger, then you must exercise your faith and you build upon it. I like what Paul says to Timothy. All scripture is breathed out. It's inspired. It's breathed out by God. Now listen, if you ever talk to anybody that tells you that they don't have confidence in the word of God, it's an old book, an antiquated book. It's not modern. It's not relevant. There's so many errors in it. Well, you need to remember for yourself and then you need to teach them all scripture. The claim is all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. Here it is for training. How do you become a contender of the faith for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work? And we all should exercise, right? I mean, how many of us like the gym or how many of us like to go and lift weights or to run and ride the bicycle or the elliptical or swim? We all ought to exercise. But Paul said to Timothy, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So what he's saying is, there is some value in physical training. There's something good about running. There's something good about riding that bike and lifting those weights and and getting into the gym or getting into the pool. There's some value to that. But you've got to keep it in perspective because there's eternal value in spiritual training. So let me ask you, if you'd like to train, if you'd like to work out, we've got people that train for mixed martial arts in our church. We got people that are training for tough, tough mutters and half marathons. We got people training for a lot of things. So if you, if you like to train, let me ask you for a question for a moment. Is your training of your faith in balance with the training of your body? Now, I don't mean for every 60 minutes that you spend working on your body, you've got to have 120 minutes working on your heart. I'm not saying that. The Bible doesn't say anything that precise. There's a value, though, that ought to be applied 
to both. And the value for spiritual training should be greater than the value that is evident in your life for physical training. And if there's not, then you're not building up your faith to the degree that we need to. So study the Word of God. Know God more deeply through the Scriptures. Exercise that knowledge. It's no good just stuffing more information into your mind. It's never meant to stay in your mind. It's meant for, to travel from your mind to your heart where it changes your desires and moves you to act it out in obedience. And the result of building up faith is discernment. It's the ability to distinguish truth from lies. And when you hear false teaching, you'll recoil from it. Your spirit will bear witness to it because you've been building up your faith. Your knowledge and the love of God is greater. And a faith that's being built up will have the strength and the conviction and the courage to confront false teaching. You know, when I skip one to two weeks of, of exercise, I lose strength so quickly that it feels like you're starting over when you get back to the gym. Well, the weakness from not eating occurs in our bodies, but the weakness of not building up your spirit through the word of God, feasting on God through his word, emaciates the spirit. Now, when we don't build up our spirit through the word of God, we can become weaker. This is why the Chinese church used to have a saying, no Bible, no breakfast. How would that be for a challenge? No Bible in the morning, no breakfast in the morning. Well, somebody in here is probably saying, that's all right, I skipped breakfast anyways. Okay, well, no Bible, no food that day. And those hunger pains that your body begins to feel, well, that's what your spirit, your soul is doing as well. You just might not be picking up the signals. So Jude says, he uses a Greek tense here, building up your faith. It's in a tense that says, don't stop. You've got to keep doing it over and over and over. The training must be repetitive. It must be continuous. It's an action that cannot be stopped. Every single day, Coach Jude says, build yourselves up in the faith, studying God's word. You've got to know it, love it, test it, live it. And teach it to other people. But then he goes to the next instruction. And I want you to follow along in your Bibles. He says in verse 20. That we need to be praying in the Holy Spirit. Didn't say praying to the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit. You've got to build yourself up in your most holy faith. And you've got to be praying in the Spirit. Now listen. If all we do. If all we do. Is read and study the Bible. We're going to have a lot of knowledge, but you're not going to have a lot of power. You'll have a lot of information, but you're not going to have a lot of transformation. And if we concentrate on prayer and ignore the Bible, now listen, there's people that do that. If you're a prayer, but you don't like reading the Bible, then you're going to likely be guilty of a lot of zeal, a lot of movement with a lot of, without a lot of understanding. Prayer and the study of God's word, friends, they must go together. And together they make a Christian a formidable force in this world. 
You see, the word of God begins to change your thinking. The word of God begins to renew your mind, helping you to know what to do and to agree with God's will. Did you hear that? You see, studying the word of God begins to penetrate down. And if you want to know, well, what creates that transformation? Well, what creates that transformation is the literal power of the living and active word of God. That once it's believed, once it's received, once it's brought into your mind and it's acted on, it begins to change your desires. It begins to change your understanding, change your perspective so that you see the way God sees, you feel the way God feels and you want what God wants and you hate what God hates. That's the power of the word of God. In fact, Philippians brings it out, this transforming power of God. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now listen to this. Paul goes on. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now that's up on the screen, so I want you to see that, or it's in your Bible if you're there. But I want you to see, for it is God, and means that God is already at work. We're working out our salvation. We're building on and up our most holy faith, for it is God who's already working. He's working in you, both to will and to work. He's working in us so that we do, we will, we want, and we do, we work for his good pleasure. You see, praying in the Spirit moves the Spirit to work in us. Taking the word of God and applying it in our hearts, changing our desires, adjusting our perspectives, stirring his will in our will. So parents, let me, let me put it this way. Think of it this way. Would you rather that your child obeys you out of fear of the consequences or from a heart that treasures what you say and what you want and does what you want because they love you. Which one would you rather have? A child who obeys you because of fear or a child who obeys you because they love you and they honor you? Well, I think all of us would say the latter. Well, God is our heavenly father. There's nothing different spiritually with God's heart. He wants a child who is studying and loving God's word and praying in the spirit because it's changing our desires. So then all of a sudden we begin to want what God wants. We begin to love what God loves. We begin to hate what God hates. And our obedience is not because we're afraid of what might happen if we don't obey, but grace is working in us and it's changing us so that obedience becomes something that I want to do. I don't want to be disobedient. You see, prayer must be in alignment with his will or as James wrote, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. You To spend it on your own passions. To pray in the spirit is to pray consistent with God's will. Trusting him to help us in our weaknesses, like Romans says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are just too deep for words. 
Remember, don't lose the context. Jude is helping us to become contenders so that we can discern false teaching, so that we can fight for the faith. And he's just told us that these false teachers, look at, look at the passage in verse 19, that these false teachers were devoid of the Spirit. And now he's contrasting this. If you're in Christ, you've got the living Spirit of God inside you, praying in the Holy Spirit. How amazing that is. That he, the Holy Spirit, who knows the mind of God, and he begins to reveal that to us through his word, he is inside you, brother and sister. He is living in you. You are his temple, and he is working a reconstruction project in your life, and he is retooling your desires. He is remaking your dreams. He is helping you become more like Christ. Well, Jude keeps going, so let's keep plodding along here. We're learning how to be contenders. We've got a coach. His name is Jude. He wants us to get in the ring. He wants us to contend for the faith. He wants us to discern, to expose, and to defeat false teachers. And he says the third one, you've got to keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, he learned this from his brother. Remember, Jude is the stepbrother of Jesus. And Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. In other words, you are the beloved. Now live in that love. Jude says it this way. Keep yourselves in the love of God. But what does that mean? I mean, we all do this. And by the way, don't think that I don't struggle with this too. You know, you read the Bible maybe in the morning or your lunch break or in the evening. And you get to something like this, keep yourselves in the love of God. And if it's not immediately easy picking, you know, like the what it means is right there on the surface, then we tend to kind of gloss over it with the best of intentions. We'll come back and we'll study that, but often we don't. What's it, what's it mean then to keep yourselves in the love of God? It doesn't mean this, I can tell you that. It doesn't mean that you've got to keep yourself saved. Because Jude's already told us, verse 1, he's about to tell us again in verse 24 that we're being kept for Jesus Christ. Jesus is our keeping Savior. So whatever it means to keep yourself in the love of God, it cannot mean that you've got to keep yourself saved. Well, let me illustrate what it means in two ways. And I think it can kind of help us understand what it means to keep yourselves in the love of God. You know, I often see mothers in our church who have little toddlers walking beside her. And uh, and I'll sometimes I'll bend down to say hello to that child and and almost always that little child at that age will hide behind mom's leg and clutch her skirt or her pants and and stay within her protective reach. Well, Jude is saying, stay close to God. Keep yourselves, stay close to God. Naturally, instinctively move under his protective care and his fatherly love. Now, what he's saying is stay within the love of God. You've got, when, when, when things come in your life, trials and sufferings that threaten you, 
Visualize in your mind, brother and sister, flee to the leg of God, so to speak. Climb into the word of God. Get yourself into the throne of mercy where God is sitting upon it and ruling your life with goodness and power. Clutch his leg and hold on. And he will reach around you. The Bible gives you the visual imagery like an eagle. The wings and the feathers enclosing around the eaglets. He will hide you into the cleft of the rock. He will put you on high places that are safe. And he will put you on the rock rather than sinking, shifting sand. He will come around you. That's the love of God. Keep yourselves in that love. Something comes, threatens you, flee to the Father. But let me give you another way to understand what this means keeping yourselves in the love of God. And I'll explain it through my own dog, Rusty, whom I love. It used to be that when we would take Rusty on walks through the woods, that we would have to keep him on a leash because anything, scent or movement, would send him running after it. We never knew if he was going to come back. Some of us, namely myself, prayed that he might enjoy his freedom forever. But he would come back. But what we've learned is that through discipline, through teaching Rusty the consequences of when he wanders away, when he disobeys, and through that discipline, what we've taught him is that now when we walk through the woods, I don't need to pee, I don't need to keep Rusty on the leash. I can let him go and he will not run off. He will stay where we are. He will run when we're running. He will stop walking when we stop walking. He's matured enough to stay in the sphere of us. Now let me connect that to this text, keeping yourselves in the the love of God. In the Greek language, it means this. You stay in the sphere of God's love. Picture a circle. If you ever used to watch the Bugs Bunny show, he used to be up on stage and he would be doing a dance routine with a carrot in his mouth and the spotlight would come down a very well-defined circle and Bugs Bunny didn't know. He stumbled onto the uh, to the theater production is one show that I saw and he didn't know where he was supposed to go But wherever that sphere of light went bugs bunny just went well That's what it means keeping yourselves in the love of God you follow God's love in other words If God says this is what I am pleased for you to do then you stay there And if God says that this behavior this action is is not pleasing to me This would be disobedience. This is what I hate then leaving that sphere to come over here is getting out of God's love staying in keeping in God's love is staying within his blessing And God taught us through Jesus how to keep his how to keep his love. He said if you keep my commandments, Jesus said, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So how do you keep, how do we keep ourselves in God's love? We keep his commandments. This is all about obedience. 
You see, you got to remember the flow here. You've been building up yourselves, your holy faith, by the word of God. It's changing your desires. You're praying in the spirit. The spirit of God is working in you to want what God wants, hate what he hates. And he's keeping you. It's his grace that's helping us to keep ourselves in his love, obeying his commands. It's an inside-out process. You be, you, we are to be in God's word. We're to pray in the spirit. We are to love to be obedient to God and know the rich power of his love. Friends, that's the way that grace works. And a lot of Christians need to relearn this. Grace sets us free from our selfish desires. It frees you and I. It teaches us to love and to serve God. This is what Titus meant when he wrote, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to, for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Here it is. We're ready, right back in Jude, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's verse 21 of Jude. See, keeping yourselves in the love of God is loving what God loves because the word of God has been brought to our hearts by the Spirit of God in transformation. You know, I'll sometimes explain to rebellious teens and parents, if you've got a a teenager that is defying your authority, that's rebelling against you, This is what I would say to them as a youth pastor. I would explain to them that the authority of your parents acts like a shield for your life. Picture it maybe as an umbrella over your head. And while you're under that umbrella, the flaming darts of the enemy are extinguished. They are hitting that authority. They are protecting you. But when you rebel, you come out from underneath that shield, that God-given umbrella of protection over your life. When you come out from under that in rebellion, the enemies have their day in your life. So if you choose to defy your parents' authority, then you're going to leave their protection. You're going to expose yourself to the enemies who want to destroy your life. And the same goes for all of us. If we stray from the love of God, if we wander away from his legs, so to speak, and we're disobedient and we're rebellious, we leave the protection that he has given to us. So Jude says, build yourselves up in the faith. Pray in the spirit. Stay in his love. And and finally and forth, be waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now let's get our bearings. We've got a coach. His name is Jude. And he is training us. He's teaching us to how to learn to become a contender. Because we've all got an agon. You remember that? That's the Greek word for contenders. That's the place where the contest takes place. It's the arena where the battle is. It might be your neighborhood. It might be your home. It might be your school or your college. It might be your workplace. That's your agon. It might be your gym. Wherever it is, that's where you are to get into the fight. That's where you are to contend for the faith. You're to love and be gracious to those around you and courageous to share the truth. And so he's giving us four instructions. How do you look in and remain? And the fourth one, the final one, is you got to hope. 
You've got a hope. Look what it says in verse 21. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Friends, I want to be honest with you. This might be the hardest of the four. Because it's really hard to wait. And some of you know this better than I do. It's really hard to keep hoping when you're suffering. We have people in our church who they just suffer and they suffer and they suffer. And to my knowledge, there's not because there's any sin in their life that God is dealing with. I mean, there's always sin in all of our lives, but not all suffering is directly connected to personal sin. And in these lives that I'm speaking of, there's just seems to be just incessant, continuous suffering. It breaks my heart to see it. Yet the promises of God are never if, they're always when. They're never if, they're always when. And when we have an attitude of confidence that the Lord will return. So remember that the troubles of this life are short compared to eternity. It can create that hope that can battle the despair. And a hope-filled Christian is one of the most powerful contenders for the faith because the world has no lasting hope. So Jude says, be waiting. Now listen, if you're taking notes, if you write in your Bible, which I always encourage you to do, and you underline that phrase or that word waiting, here's what I'd encourage you to write down because here's what that word means. It means earnestly expecting. That's a little different than waiting. Now we're in the region in the domain of hope. It means to earnestly be expecting. Earnest expectation goes by another name, and that name is hope. And I want to offer you a definition of the word hope. And I'm going to encourage you either write it down or pound it into your mind as an anchor because you're going to need it because all of us suffer. Hope is faith in your future based on God's faithfulness in your past. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. This is so important. Hope is faith in your future. Hope is always about the future. But it's based on God's faithfulness in your past. Faith in your future based on God's faithfulness in your past. And when we get to verses 24 and 25 in what's called the doxology, we're going to see that it is the, it is based on a confidence of God's power and God's character. By the way, if you ever wondered about anxiety, let me tell you about anxiety because all of us struggle with anxiety to one degree or another. Anxiety is fear for your future. Remember, hope is faith in your future. Anxiety is fear for your future. But it's based on the perception that God has not been faithful in your past. So anxiety is also about the future. Anxiety is never about your present. It's never really directly about your past. It's always about something that's imminent or impending. It's fear for your future based on the perception that God has not been faithful in your past. So how do you deal with people who are struggling with anxiety? Well, you've got to discover, you've got to uncover their perceptions, their misbeliefs, their misguided understandings that God has been unfaithful. 
God is never unfaithful. God cannot be unfaithful. He cannot contradict his character. And his character over and over and over in the scripture is upheld as a character of faithfulness. See, hope, let's get back to hope. Hope is the attitude that says, I can make it through this. I can endure to the end through this trial, through this persecution from these false teachers and these Romans in the early churches state. I can make it endure it to the end because my God has never been unfaithful to me. His promises are never if, they're always when. See, hope works in us. Now, I want you to get this. Like the manager in the corner of the ring yelling out that there's 30 seconds to go in the round. So he's telling his fighter, don't quit. Get on with it. Fight to the very end. You've only got 30 seconds left. Hope works like the sign that says to the marathoner that you've only got one more mile to go. I know your lungs are dying. I know your feet are hurting. I know you're, you're in agony, but you can make it. You've only got a mile left. See, friends, when we lose sight of the finish line, which is all of what verse 20 is, it's Jude's finish line, it's the bell. And he says, you can do it. You can endure. Get into the ring. Become a contender. It won't last forever. Get everything you've got because Jesus is going to come back again. And he's got mercy now and his mercy is coming. You know what I believe? I believe that losing sight of the finish line has caused more Christians to give up on the faith than nearly any other reason. This is why I want to do a sermon series one day on heaven. Because I think heaven, preaching and teaching and understanding heaven, puts that finish line within sight and picks up our flagging feet. It gets us our arms swinging again with energy because we know it's not going to be very long. And we know what awaits us is so much greater than what's anchoring us here. And it can set us free from this. I remember reading about Florence Chadwick. Who was the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. She was an amazing distance swimmer. But I want you to hear this. In 1951... July 4th, 1951, July 4th, she attempted to swim from the Catalina Islands to the California coast. The challenge was not the distance. The challenge was in two areas. Number one, the cold Pacific waters. And the second one on that particular day was a thick pea soup-like fog. And she's swimming, and she's in the water for 15 hours. She's swimming. Now listen to this. She is one half of a mile from the California coast. She's got fog all around her. People are in the boats next to her. They're saying, you can do it, Florence. You can do it. Keep swimming. And finally, she gave up. And they pulled her out of the waters into the boat. She was interviewed shortly after that. 
And she told the reporter these words, quote, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen land, I might have made it. Well, soon she attempted the feat again, and once again, a, a misty veil obscured the coastline, and she couldn't see the shore. But this time, this time, her mind knew she made it because she kept reminding herself that land was there. And with that confidence, Florence swam on, she swam on, she swam on until she finally walked herself out of the Pacific Ocean, up on California sand, and she broke the men's record of the same distance by two two hours. Listen to what Jude says again. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Here it is, Florence Chadwick, waiting for the mercy of Of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's hope. That's the power of hope. And when hope floods a contender's heart, there is nearly nothing that he or she cannot prevail against. Jude is training us to be contenders for the gospel. He says, build up your faith, your holy faith in the word of God. Pray in the spirit, keep in God's love and hope in his mercy. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Friends, are you a contender? Jude just taught us our spiritual exercise program. Let's be faithful to it. Let me encourage you as you leave today, which of those do you need most prayer in? Are you weak in the Word of God? Are you not studying the Word of God? Then let's get praying about that. Let's get people praying for you. Let's get moving that into action immediately, not... Tomorrow, not the next day, but today. And if you're praying and the spirit is weak, well, get people praying for you. Get accountability, get support. Get on your knees. Your body, your spirit follows your body. Get your posture right before the Lord. Your mind and your heart are going to follow. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Listen, if you wonder if God loves you, the first thing to ask is, am I being disobedient to him? Because when you leave the sphere of God's love and you rebel and you defy and you come out from under his authority, you are open to the attacks of the enemy. So repent, confess, get back into that sphere and realize that he's never left you or forsake you. He loves you. And he's saying, welcome home. Now let's get contending. But maybe for you, hope is your biggest struggle. Maybe you've lost hope and what fills your heart is despair that this is never going to end. I'm never going to make it. And you want to be like Florence. You want to get out of the water and into the boat. Listen, you can make it to the California coast. You can make it to heaven. You can make it to the mercies of eternity. God can help you with it. Have faith for your future and base it on God's utter faithfulness to you in your past. And let's get in the ring and let's fight for the faith. Amen.